Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Next week, the Supreme Court will hear the case of Joseph Kennedy, a high school football coach from Bremerton, Washington. In 2015, the school district put Kennedy on administrative leave and then declined to renew his contract because Kennedy continued his practice of saying a prayer at midfield after each game. A federal appeals court rejected Kennedy's claim that the school district had violated his constitutional rights. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit concluded that because allowing Kennedy to pray at midfield would violate the Constitution's Establishment Clause, the school district's efforts to prevent that conduct did not run afoul of the Constitution. Kennedy came to the Supreme Court last year asking the justices to review his case, and they will hear oral argument on April 25th. It's not surprising that the case has drawn a lot of attention and a lot of friend-of-the-court briefs, three dozen supporting Coach Kennedy and 21 supporting the school district. Joining us today to talk about one of those briefs are Professor Nicole Stell Garnett and John Meiser, who's a supervising attorney and teaching professor at Notre Dame Law School's Religious Liberty Initiative. Professor Garnett, John, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. To start off, tell us a little bit about the Religious Liberty Initiative. Sure. So I'll talk about that. Um, the RLI, uh, it's new. It's, it's entering its second year now. Um, and it's this broad endeavor of Dean Marcus Cole of the law school um, to engage in a very intentional way with uh, a number of issues relating to the freedom of religion and law and religion more generally. Um, that includes from an academic side, promoting engagement with these ideas and, and scholarship about the freedom of religion. But um, the biggest piece of it is the Religious Liberty Clinic, which I am the supervising attorney for, and, and Nicole is the, the director for this year. And in the clinic, we work with a team of about a dozen uh, really talented law students here at Notre Dame to litigate cases like this case to protect religious freedom for people of all faiths. So it gives our students an opportunity to engage in these cutting edge religious liberty issues, to work with leaders in the field and, and to really train to become lawyers, not only in religious freedom, but sort of appellate or, or litigators more generally. To give you an idea, this year, this academic year so far, with our students, we filed six briefs in courts around the country. Four of those are in the Supreme Court itself. And by the end of the year, we expect to have filed 10 briefs and and five in the Supreme Court. And these are cases concerning religious freedom in any number of areas, schools, healthcare, the direction of sacred lands, all sorts of things. So it's it's a really rewarding experience for me to work with these these students and to see their commitment and see them take charge of these, these really important cases. How many credit hours do they get for the clinics? Well, it varies. So right now, two or three credit hours for this semester. In the fall, we will launch an even, um, say, more intensive course where it'll be five credit hours in the fall and then a few in the spring. And in all of our students, a very competitive selection process and our students commit for at least one full year. uh, And then some of them stay on. If they're two L's, some of them stay on to come back uh, in their third year to sort of be student leaders uh, and continue to do this work. Tell us a little bit about the process that led to this brief, please. How did the brief come about? And then there were, as I mentioned, three dozen briefs on Coach Kennedy's side. So I imagine there was some coordination 
with his lawyers and with the other amici and then working with the students and with your co-counsel? So, well, as John said, the, the, the heart of the Religious Liberty Initiative is the, the clinic, which is an opportunity for our students to, to work on cases. So far, we've mostly worked um, on amicus briefs with the students, uh, and nothing makes students more excited than filing briefs in the Supreme Court or work. They can't file the briefs, but they obviously can work on them. So we, we monitor the docket closely. We know what cases, um, what, what the cert petitions are, are you know pending, and certainly every time that court were to grant a religious liberty case, we have a conversation about whether we should get involved and if so, what the argument should be. In this case, you might notice we represented ourselves, the Religious Liberty Initiative, because we wanted to take a little bit more of a, an academic approach to the issue. Um, in other cases, we've represented clients. We, we were involved in the Carson litigation. We represented Catholic, Jewish, and Muslim schools. So when this the case was granted and we the about that so Decker, Mike McGinley, and Steve Engel worked with us on this case and others at Deckard. They Mike is a uh, Mike McGinley is a Notre Dame grad and he loves Notre Dame. He went to undergrad here and he has just been really eager to work with our students and they are awesome to work with. The students get the opportunity to work with you know the, some of the top appellate lawyers in the country and they're very generous with their time. So when the court grants in a case, you know Mike. McKinley always calls and says, hey, you want to team up again? So that's how we, how that started. As far as, you know, the argument, structuring the argument, which focuses, as you know, on the endorsement test, which I guess we'll get into in a minute. We just had a conversation with Mike McGinley and Steve and my husband, Rick, who is a law and religion scholar as well about, you know, what is the thing that we could say, you know, the classic amicus question, what is the thing that we could say that is the greatest value add? My husband Rick has, has written about the endorsement test. We thought that uh, we think it's a mess and it would be a good opportunity for the students to really kind of dig into how that test has played out in the in the courts. And so that's why we decided to go with this particular approach. Uh, and it was, I think of the cases, uh, of the briefs that we've written, I think the students had the most fun um, with this one because digging into some of these stories was just, a, it was a lot of fun and kind of funny too. Yes, I mean, it shows that there, it is not all legal research necessarily. I mean, certainly you, you had legal research, but there's a, there's a lot of sort of news research to be done. Yeah, so our brief, uh, set, it really asks the court to definitively jettison this so-called endorsement test, which asks whether a, a government is required to suppress religion or not. So there's a line between it when it's required to allow it and required to suppress it. And that line, according to the endorsement test, is whether a reasonable observer would think that if the government allowed this conduct or speech to continue, it was endorsing religion. And so we we had sort of two goals, main goals in the brief. The first was to, to show that these this case is completely unworkable and the lower courts are in chaos, which was fun for a student to work on. The other though was I've been involved in education cases for a long time. Um, and I, I really was aware that there were these, this kind of parade of horribles going on in the school, usually well-meaning teachers and administrators quite confused about what the establishment clause requires. Suppressing, you know, things like telling a little girl, one of the stories we, we found in the newspaper which didn't lead to litigation was a little girl uh, was asked to write a report on her idol and she chose God. And the teacher said that she couldn't choose God. She had to pick an alternative. And so she chose Michael Jackson. Um, Michael Jackson was okay, but um, God wasn't okay. 
Uh, and then lots of other stories that we found about, you know, the teacher requiring the child to wash his ash Wednesday, ashes off, teacher requiring students to take off a hijab. Um, so it's so like not allowing the students to read the Bible. Um, one funny story we found was that um, one principal sent around a list of unacceptable holiday items that included all things red and green um, out of concern about endorsing Christmas apparently. So um, it wasn't, it, our goal was both to illustrate for the court that the test, if it is a test, it's not even always applied by the court, but the test is, is creating kind of a mess in the lower courts. They don't know how to apply it, but it's also even more importantly, it's actually sort of mucking up the daily lives of kids and teachers um, because they're confused about what is and isn't permitted. And it leads to kind of an extreme risk aversion with you know, little kids being forced to choose, say their idol is Michael Jackson rather than God, when it's perfectly acceptable for a student to write in a paper that her, a fifth grader to write that her idol is, is God. Are the two related? I guess this was the question that I came away from. A teacher's not thinking about it in terms of the reasonable observer test, but is it just that there's so much lack of clarity on the legal side or is there just sort of a general fear on this part of teachers and administrators that they err on the side, not just of caution, but really sort of pushing back to the extreme, you think? I would say that one begets the other to some degree. Like okay. I, I agree. It's not that your typical elementary school teacher is probably paying very close attention to Supreme Court law on the establishment clause, right? But if we had a very clear test that resulted in very consistent decisions from lower courts, then I think that could could trickle down and we get a clear idea of what do we actually mean when we say a public school can't have an establishment of a religion. But when you have this test that's worried about these very vague notions of the reasonable observer, who is reasonable, right? We all think we're reasonable, but but what? how much does the reasonable observer know about the program in question, about the history of that program? What exactly can they see? Like, What's their viewpoint? How long have they been looking at the symbol or something in question? But even the, the deeper question of what does it mean to endorse something, Justice Kennedy called this creating a, a jurisprudence of minutia, right? So you maybe you can have a public display of a menorah if it's in context of a Christmas tree and some other symbols. And then that doesn't seem to be an endorsement of the Jewish religion. But what if you have a menorah and it has fewer other symbols around it? At what point is the dividing line? And if, if courts can't even do this, and they, I don't think they can, not consistently, then we're really asking a lot of someone like a teacher or a local official who's not a lawyer, not a judge, to say in real time, oh, this is in, this is out, that's an endorsement, that's not. I, I think we've created a very strange system where we have these questions that are almost unanswerable and the people who really have to answer them are probably not gonna be expected to know the great detail of these cases. And so I think the result is Yes, you have this abundance of caution. You know the school can't say endorse a religion. Maybe you don't know it exactly in those terms, but you know there's concern about if your public school is seen to be, say, favoring religion or supporting a religious message. And so I think the natural reaction of a lot of these people is to, to really be cautious about doing that lest you get in trouble. I teach education law and I always tell my students, um, you have to remember, and I love it when I have teachers in the room, like former teachers, because they'll agree. 
it's it's every classroom in so many ways can sort of become a courtroom. It's sort of like what we ask police officers to do to make calls about the Fourth Amendment on the street, right? So they are in some ways they know they're supposed to be secular and they're not supposed to endorse religion, even if they don't, even if they don't use those words. And so they sort of do have this extreme risk aversion. But I do think, as John points out, that that one begets the other because sometimes the school district will get in trouble for letting some in the courts for letting something go, like allowing a, a school choir to sing a hymn. Um, so, you know, some the 11th Circuit says it's okay to sing hymns in a public school choir, but the Third Circuit says it's not okay. You know, so the, so the, the extreme risk aversion based upon like probably what was a one or two credit education law class that they had to take when they were in education school, it's not entirely unfounded because the school districts sometimes lose these cases when they allow the the speech or the conduct to continue. That actually was something that interested me reading your brief because you had these descriptions of situations in which courts had reached different results on the same question about hymns or candy canes with religious messages. And as a former Supreme Court litigator, I look at those and I think circuit splits, but those were all instances in which no one went as far as I could tell, to the Supreme Court. Why do you think that some of these questions haven't gone to the Supreme Court seeking more clarity? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I was thinking about it. So the, the you know, the, the three, there the are a bunch of different just like splits, literally like, so you can use religion in a graduation speech, religious references if you're a high school student in I think the fifth circuit, but you can be punished for doing so in the third circuit. That would, was one example, or the candy canes. You can, it's okay to pass them out in the fifth circuit, but it's not okay in the district of New Jersey to pass out candy canes with a little like Jesus loves you taped to it. Um, so how does that not, part of it is, you know, the cases probably settle. Um, it's not worth appealing to the Supreme Court. It's um, you know, it's the students are gone. It's a long time since the third, the candy cane incident. But you know, even to the extent if they had gone up, you know, as a former Supreme Court litigator, you know, and as a former Supreme Court clerk, what the clerk would write, which is it's it's fact bound. Fair enough. I mean, every the the one of the problem with the endorsement test, like why can't you get more clarity in the endorsement test? It's inherently like a, a, a just jurisprudence of minutia. It's a fact bound inquiry. So if the question is, did the Third Circuit err in saying that it was okay to punish a little, punish a high school student for mentioning Jesus or Allah in her graduation speech, you know, the clerk is going to say that's just fact bound. It's like, it's not likely to replicate itself. And even if you have two candy cane cases, they're still fact bound. It's not really the, the court's job to fix error. Um, and the court is, has historically been one of the points we make in our brief, cautious, even as it's become more pro-religion in its jurisprudence, it's been excessively cautious about sort of clearing away this undergrowth of older precedents that lead to this kind of confusion. So it's an incremental thing and they don't like to overturn precedents that they don't have to. All right, so talk about the, the test that you're proposing. So I think the, our brief at the end sort of says, look, we, we think the court got it right in town of Greece and other cases where it said like the question about whether or not government um, is violating the establishment clause should just turn on history and tradition. There are two problems with the endorsement test. One is it's completely unhinged from any historical proper understanding of the constitution. The second is 
what we focus on a lot in the brief, which is it's completely unworkable and has resulted in chaos. But so, you know, what would history and tradition look like? I think Beckett's brief does a very good job of laying this out. An establishment clause violation is if you're being coerced to do something as in coerced as in being punished if you don't do it that is religious. The government is making you practice religion. So in the public school context, in the 19th century, it was very common that public schools required Catholic and Jewish students to recite from the King James Bible. And they were occasionally expelled. Some fun cases, not fun, but interesting cases about students being beaten when they failed to recite from the King James Bible in public schools in the 19th century. That's obviously punishment, that's coercion. A guy praying on the field at the 50 yard line being joined by some students is not, they're not gonna get punished for not that this purely private conduct. Um, so this, this line about like whether or not the government is, can be violating the establishment clause by appearing to endorse purely private conduct doesn't really have play any role in a proper understanding of the constitutional in, in the establishment clause in these public speech cases. I mean, I do think that schools are a complex environment and that the school cases are all over the place because we have 90% of our students in the United States are in these environments for most of their waking hours. <laughs> and clarity is really important because of that. And I don't think it's like a, I don't blame the, the schools for making mistakes in many of these cases. Sometimes it looks like they're actually hostile, but I don't blame them in many cases. They're usually well-meaning but just some clarity about what it means and feeling uncomfortable is not an establishment clause violation. And having a little boy pray before lunch is not an establishment clause violation. Um, so I think this idea that actually being required to engage in a loose conduct with a penalty attached to it if you don't is the right way to, to think about it. So the courtroom is closed. Your students cannot travel to Washington DC, but are they gonna listen? Yeah, we're having a listen party. So what questions, what are you listening for when, you listen, when you're going to be listening to the oral argument? Well, I would hope uh, we would get some direct questioning about the viability of this endorsement test or, or lemon. Um, this case could be decided, right, without addressing the test itself. And the court doesn't have to decide this case. The court doesn't have to decide the future fate of the endorsement test, but it would be great if we get direct questioning about that. Um, and maybe we will, we, we, the court is full of justices right now who have criticized the test and, and some who have directly called for it to be jettisoned. And so that would be a, a terrific sign that maybe the court will decide the case in a broader way and say, we need to fix this jurisprudence. It's, it's been a wreck, it's, we've, uh, we've noticed it's been a wreck, lower courts have noticed this for decades now and it's time to fix it questions about the effect of the test, about the effect that it has in the real world with schools and teachers. But, but beyond that, I mean, we filed a, a brief, our clinic filed a brief in another case, this term, Shirtliff v. Boston, which is a speech case. And it's about these flagpoles that the city of Boston put up that let community groups come fly a flag for a day. And, but in the record of that case, so the issue there is this group camp constitution wanted to fly a so-called Christian flag and they were denied. And the reason the official denied it was he was worried if they flew it, it would be uh, an establishment, right? You can't fly a Christian flag in front of City Hall. So it's not just in schools. And so we get questioning about the broader effects of this test and how it plays out and advertisements on public transportation and those that can be allowed, all these sorts of things. 
I think that would be a great sign that maybe the court is really thinking seriously about can we continue this further? I don't know, Colm, you might have other ones you have. Yeah, I want them to ask about candy canes <laughs> or Michael Jackson. Um, but no, I think John's right. I mean, asking questions in the shirtlift argument, um, it did come up. There was some talk about endorsement. At one point, Justice Kennedy said, I mean, Justice Kennedy, Justice Kavanaugh said in exasperation, the lawyer says, we're afraid to appear to be endorsing religion. And he said, exactly. So I, but it was a little, it wasn't as central to the case. So I think we want to hear, it's going to be curious to see how much of the argument is about the endorsement test and whether they actually engage in this question about whether it's workable or not. Um, and like Sean said, I think you could, you could, they could resolve this case without touching it. But I think that some questions about, you know, it's, it's a classic as a law professor, it's such a fun test to play with because you can come up with a million hypotheticals. So some fun hypotheticals would be great. So which justices are you watching most closely for, for our listeners who aren't as steeped in the, in the discussion? Well, I, th I think a majority of the current court is on record in some opinion or another as questioning or just outright criticizing the endorsement test. So you have the plurality in the Bladensburg Cross case, American Legion. You have Justice Alito, the Chief Justice, Justice Breyer, Justice Kavanaugh. They all criticized it. You have Justice Thomas in concurrence in the same case, criticized Justice Gorsuch when he's at the Tenth Circuit, really uh, criticized it, went, wrote a dissent from denial of rehearing on Bonk where he really um, laid into the test. So you have just there on the record a majority of currently sitting justices who are skeptical, perhaps even uh, willing to overrule the test. So uh, Nicole might know, I, I don't know that I've seen Justice Barrett on the record about this, but there, there's plenty there on the current court. Yeah, I, I think that the, the real question is if they'll just jettison the test and and interesting, you know, more broad implications. So we don't uh, tackle Lemon uh, head on here, right? So, but, you know, will they just, could they just, are they going to throw out, you know, not just endorsement, which is sort of a half test because it only applies sometimes, you know, right. one of the problems with the endorsement test is not always applied. So some cases they, they ignore it. In some cases they apply it and, it seems to be play a big role in schools, but not in other contexts. So, you know, will they throw that out, but will they just also clean up, as I mentioned before, like there's the older cases, which could be read by some public school administrators requiring hostility toward religion that have not been overturned and, and the confusion about what lemon, lemon means today. And will they just throw the whole thing out? Those are questions that I would I would really think would be fascinating to for the court to engage in. Like, so should we just dump it? You know, is it, is lemon dead and should we say so? And if we don't say so, what are the implications for just people trying to do their jobs, judges and bureaucrats? <laughs> A lot to listen for in the upcoming argument. Nicole Stell Garnett and John Mieser, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser. 